These eyes have seen a lot of loves, but they're never going to see another one like I had with the 2011 Canadian Grand Prix. Welcome to Shift F1, a podcast about speedy race cars. That, by the way, is a lyric by the Canadian band Guess Who, who evidently are F1 fans. Oh, very good. My brain was cycling. Judging by those lyrics. My brain was cycling through my Rolodex of Canadian musical artists attempting. I was like, Celine Dion, no. Alanis Marset, no. Uh... I couldn't Danny, we like else. very different music. It seems if you just read it, if you read a line like that just out and it doesn't have like a the guess who riff going with it, it sounds like a Gordon Lightfoot song. To be quite <laughs> so honest, so there was a band called Guess Who, also and a, Canadian, a band called The Who. That's right. Stupid. Uh, we'll take this offline, Danny. Uh, if you are new to this podcast, a very warm welcome to you. If you're new to Formula One itself, we recommend listening to our preseason primer episode which assumes no prior F1 knowledge and explains how the sport works and who everybody is. By the way, who everybody is on this podcast, Danny O'Dwyer. Hi. Uh, that first one talking. Irish Rob accents. Zachney, the second one talking. Say something, Rob. The Gordon Lightfoot fan. Yeah. There we go. Uh, I was just so taken up with, you know, 70s music that I forgot to introduce you. Uh, this year's primer episode, if you'd like to go back and listen to it, is episode 216. Also, this show is supported entirely by our audience over at patreon.com slash shiftf1, where every month we release bonus podcasts and videos exclusively for our patrons that cover racing documentaries and films, F1 video games, experiments with other racing series, and a lot of weird things. Um, so if you'd like to support the show and get access to all that fun stuff, head over to patreon.com slash shiftf1 or click the link in the show notes. Speaking of weird things, uh, what do we have going on this month, Danny? Yeah, something special for the Media Pass patrons, uh, the video tier folks who get something every once in a while. Uh, their patience is being rewarded as myself and Drew this just this past weekend went to Sonoma Raceway for the NASCAR event that was on. And I brought my camera and filmed a bunch of it. Uh, we're going to talk about it after the news in a bit more detail, but I'm basically putting together a sort of a what it's like attending a NASCAR event with Drew Scanlon. Um, <laughs> you know, for anyone, anyone else who wants to attend a, a NASCAR race with Drew. I'm, cu- I'm curious, is, there, is it going to be like a, 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 you know, a highlight reel, like a B-roll package, or uh, is there going to be VO? Like, what do you think? Yeah, I started out like doing a lot of to-camera stuff and then quickly realized that doing that at a NASCAR event was going to create quite a lot of audio issues the, the longer the video went on. So I sort of resi- resigned myself to filming B-roll and I'm basically putting together a like scripted video. So I'm, I'm writing wow. my thoughts and I will cut it together. So it'll be like a little sort of feature um, with a... Like a travelogue. Yeah, like a little... Tra- yeah, travel, yeah. You know, ever, ever done one of those, Drew? <laughs> <laughs> I'm unfamiliar. <laughs> Um, yeah, so looking forward to getting that up in the next uh, next couple of weeks over on the Patreon for Media Pass patrons. Uh, I don't Special know. thanks to uh, Steve yes. Boylan, a.k.a. Uh, your friend Steve on the Shift F1 Discord for uh, getting us the hookup, taking us around. Yeah. Um, it was so cool. What a Thank host. Thank you so much, Steve. What a host. What we a got great to, host. Yeah, I got, saw, got pretty close to a bunch of drivers, saw a lot of great cars, VIP access. We were on. I mean, we'll talk about it after the news. Um, yeah. But yeah, super nice guy. He's also uh, part of Big Promble Motorsports that used to be a title sponsor as well. So very cool. Right. Uh, speaking of title sponsors, um, Cyphus Training. Thanks to all of our 
Amazing title sponsors, including Cyphers Training, Turf SCS, Alex Medina, Kikaha of the Art, at Team Blackjack, Michael Maves, Gordy's Army, at Talking Autos, Olivia Evans, IronStation.dev, TelemetryDeck.com, FTC, Drew Stewart, Bailey Foote, Abdullah Althani, a meme, a documentarian, and a journalist on the same podcast. It's more of a statement. Uh, Abraham Getchell, CHMod. Plus X Bunny Crimes. <laughs> Not sure what's going on there. Some sort of collaboration. Sniggs, Alex Goucher, Max Voltar, Circuit Demon, Troy Stammer, Humberto Roca, William Romph, Irvine Clinical Research, Lachlan the Madden Man, Madder Than Ever, and Jason Kelly. Gentlemen, have we talked about what we're going to do uh, this month on the Patreon exclusive podcast? We've not yet. We have not. We have to. If anyone has any suggestions, uh, let us know on the Patreon. I mean, we have we have plenty. We should probably do another poll. That's true. We but should. yes. Yes, that's a good shout. Let's do another poll. We can add Patreon. them. And if you ever have any suggestions, feel free to DM me on, uh, uh, DM the Shift F1 account over on Patreon, or you can tweet us at Shift F1 on Twitter. Indeed. Uh, should we take it to the news? Let's do Tell it. Us. Yeah. Uh, Danny, you want to hit me with this first one? <laughs> I do. So, I don't know. I, I guess every... Speaking of Daniels? Yeah, speaking of Daniels and uh, funny people, and I guess also riding off the back of the conversation we had last week, the news post last week, that was all about uh, the new commentary that was coming to Sky in Germany and in England that was going to be, and also other territories, that was going to be children, based on children. Um, uh, now they're apparently... They're not done with uh, doing alternative <laughs> commentary tracks for F1. This one, I can't believe. It's like like I had to pinch myself. I was like, this sounds like something my subconscious would make up. Um, <laughs> according to uh, Jalopnik, ESPN are going to run with a Daniel Ricardo and Will Arnett duo commentating on the F1. Uh, it's being called Canadian, this weekend for this, the Canadian Grand Prix. This weekend, and they are also doing it for Austin and for Vegas. So it's not forever, but if enough people watch, maybe it will be. We'll have to find out. Uh, it's called the Grandstand with Daniel Ricardo and Will Arnett. Um, apparently, the vibe they're going for is something similar to the Manning cast, which, if you aren't familiar with uh, NFL football over here. Um, there is a sort of a simulcast of, uh, I don't know what, is it always on a, is it Sunday morning game? It's always Monday night. It's always Monday night, okay. Um, so I guess it's simulcast of Monday night football where um, uh, Peyton and, what's his name? Eli. Eli Manning. Um, uh, Cooper has yet to make <laughs> No, Cooper Manning. Although Cooper Manning is getting a lot of money from Caesar's sports book, I feel like. Yeah. Uh, He's, cr- he's crushing it, to yeah. be quite honest. He's doing the damn job. The the runt of the Manning litter. Um, the, uh, yeah, they do basically like a, a sort of... It's almost like a Twitch stream of football. It's the easiest way of putting it. It's very relaxed. They sit back and just chew the fat, and they have guests on and stuff like that. Apparently, they're also going to have guests on on this show. Uh, got a couple of quotes here from that Jalopnik story. Ricardo says, We will have some amazing guests, plenty of laughs, and with some luck, bring fans another step closer to the sport I love so much. Buckle up, America. (laughs) Um, That's very good. And then uh, Arnett says, The more I learn about Formula One, the more I'm intrigued by it. The opportunity to work with Mika, Mika Hakkinen he's talking about, on my podcast was fantastic. And I'm really looking forward to doing this show with Daniel. We're going to have uh, fun 
and so will the viewers. I need to listen to this Mika Hackett and uh, Will Arnett podcast. What's that about? Oh, they have a... I keep getting recommended this podcast. Um, it's like everyone I know is like, Drew, you would love this. And I just haven't listened to it yet. It's called Smartless. Uh, it's with uh, Will Arnett, Jason Bateman, oh, yes. and Sean Hayes. I've listened to a couple um, of episodes of it. It's, re- okay. it's really good. I keep forgetting to go back and listen to more of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I guess they, they drift into F1 stuff yeah, occasionally. I, I, well, wait, wait, wait. They did a Netflix show. Fast and well. Loose, F1 with Will Arnett. Oh. A Wondery podcast. Okay. Oh, is that something Different. else? Different. How many podcasts? He's like one of the few celebrities that kept doing podcasts once COVID chilled out a bit. I mean, he's got the voice for it. He does, yeah. Uh, have you ever watched... What was that show he did? I thought it was the funniest thing ever. The the one where they, they had, like, he had a guest and they had to improv the oh, whole thing. The the C- crime show? Crime Land or something. Crime Town. Yeah. That was the... That episode he did with uh, the football player. Who was it? It was... um. Oh, is it Marshawn Lynch? It, it was. It was Beast Mode. Yeah, it was the one of the. Who funniest. was at the NASCAR race? Was he not? Was he? I think he was. I can't I remember. Think he was there. I know Broad Strowman was, or whatever his name is. Okay. WWE racer. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so I have a lot of Will Arnett stuff to catch up on. Apparently, I'm gonna. Li- <laughs> I think this is gonna be fun. I think that's a good idea. Apparently, it's gonna be on ESPN too. Um. Yeah, I think it'll be fun to, if if not to watch the race live, then maybe to watch it again the second time. I I am definitely watching this broadcast. Right. I'm so curious. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, I think like maybe it'll be successful. I think. So the Manning casting is the best of these, uh, in part because the Mannings are kind of weird, <laughs> and their energy can be kind of weird watching a football game, and that's kind of what makes it engaging. And uh, sometimes, like, when they're really invested in the game, the commentary gets really, really good, mm. uh, or at least very entertaining. The, uh, like, the knockoff version of this is Stephen A's World, which is another ESPN yeah. thing that they were doing during ESPN, uh, like, broadcasts where you have the the main ESPN basketball game on, like, the main channel, and then on ESPN2, it's Stephen A. Smith and friends watching it uh, and, like, talking over the game. But Stephen A. is such a star fucker that mm. the, yeah. like, that it just turned into kind of a dull, uh, sycophantic, late-night talk show host, you know, where oh, there's weird. just no spark to it whatsoever. Yeah. Um, at times it was good, but a lot of times it was it was it was kind of dull. I'm, I'm curious where this is this is going to to come down. I guess probably the best way to preview that is to listen to Fast and Loose. Uh, Fast and Loose F1 is where the world of Formula One collides with comedian Will Arnett for his hilarious and shockingly insightful commentary immediately following the checkered flag. Each race, Will is joined by F1 legend. Each race, so they've got Mika Hakkinen oh, like on lock. Was Mika wow. Hakkinen like, and pro- rotating co-hosts? Maybe, uh, yeah. Yeah, Michelle Beadle, Katie Osborne, the Kid Marrow, as they bring you post-race recaps and analysis, dive deep into all the drama and catfighting between the teams. So chat with the drivers and take listener calls. So presumably he was like into F1. I don't, my favorite one was Bill Burr is into F1, and like on his like I've also been sent those clips. Yeah, yeah, yeah I've I've I listened to his podcast like on and off for a few years, and his and he'll just like yeah just riff on. MotoGP he's kind of into a bit more mm-hmm. now these days. Um, you can tell, like, I think, you know, celebrities are not immune to the the Amer- F1ification of America. So it's been interesting seeing, like, who's into it or not. But, yeah, presumably Will Arnett knows a bit then. 
I don't know. Because I, what I don't well, want so, is one of these, like, you know, chalk and cheese, like, I know loads about F1 because I drive a car and I know nothing. Like, that'll just be yeah. not Well, cool. that's what I'm really curious to see. It's like, who is the play-by-play? Who is the color guy? Is it both? Are they, like, how is this actually going yeah. to be? Uh, will it be commentary? Will it be more just, like, you know, a, a giant bomb watch-over stream? Yeah, right. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's going to... it's. It's gonna be weird. We'll have to wait and see. Check it out on ESPN two, I believe. Uh, I don't know yeah, what you this can weekend. Check out clips on the internet, I guess, if you're not in North America. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of trying weird stuff on television. <laughs> oh my god. Rob. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I don't know how far along this is. This comes from Deadline. Uh, it is about a scripted TV series called One, uh, starring Felicity Jones. And it is produced by uh, Bedrock Entertainment, and so like it, it, it combines a lot of people with various producer credits for whatever that is worth. It's often how these things are announced in Hollywood, mm. and there, there's a lot of like uh, you know if you like these previous projects, maybe you'll like this, but that's that's hard to say. Uh, it marks the, the according to Deadline, it marks the first major series for Bedrock Entertainment, which was launched as a joint venture between Band of Brothers producer uh, Toe. Uh, True Detective exec producer Dan Sackheim and ITV Studios America. Formula One is on board as a producer. Okay. Um, but those those shows those were shows the the shows they cited they had a lot of producers. That's the thing. I don't know that I'd That's say the like thing. this is the team that brought you Band of Brothers and True Detective. It's like it's like Annapurna. You know the way like everyone loves Annapurna movies because they only promote the movies they make that they think are good and they they basically kill marketing on any movie they think isn't any good so their back catalog is like huge but no one knows anything about it i feel like that's the same with like producers where they'll mention like the one show that killed it and the 30 stinkers that they're also responsible for <laughs> and maybe had more of a hand in don't make the list uh so here's here's the pitch uh according to deadline one will focus on the tumultuous ascension of a fictitious family-owned formula one team as it contends with fierce personalities, ever-changing rivals, and multi-million dollar stakes, it will blend fiction with the real world of F1, which has 23 races sketched for the 2023 season. Uh, pending the resolution of the writer's strike, Mark Ferguson, Hawk oh, yeah. Oswald, serve as writers and exec producers of the series. Uh, so I think I'm very curious what this is going to be like, because I can see a few different directions for it, right? I could see it as yet another, like, th there's this whole wave of, um, like, Empire, I think to a degree Yellowstone is part of this. Right. Uh, what's the one with Susan Sarandon that's about, like, country music dynasty? Oh, yeah. Uh, but it's it's all these modern takes on dynasty. And mm. F1, I could kind of see, some, like, it lending itself to that, where someone, like, saw the Williams documentary yeah. and was like, what about this? What, what about this? But, like less british diffidence <laughs> and more like re like heightened operatic uh emotions i could see it being that uh i think for me the big question is like is felicity jones being cast as like a claire williams type character in the story or as a driver because the other direction i could see this going is um a series i really liked and i guess nobody else did because it was canceled really fast but pitch uh, was a Fox series that was very short-lived about a like the first and only uh, woman pitcher in Major League Baseball, and just like about navigating that, and it turned out to be a really good TV show about about baseball. All right. 
Uh, it was a terrific, uh, you know, week by week, the, 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 you know, inside the clubhouse and the, the drama of like running a, a, uh, a modern baseball operation. That was really cool. Uh, I think, you know, <laughs> it was too good for this world. And I, I suspect a lot of the people who might tune into it uh, probably were also the sort of people who would be like, well, a woman couldn't pitch in the major leagues. This just makes no sense. I'm I'm tur- I'm turning this off. This is this is too fanciful. So I'm actually really curious. Like, what are they imagining here? Is it is it effectively dynasty, but F one with Felicity Jones is like the young, um, you know, scion of the family, or is it more like a lot of the movies we have watched about you know the the coming of age? of a hotshot, unlikely talent. Mm. Yeah, I wonder, too. The first thing I went to was, like, it, so- it sounded to me like Succession, but with the backdrop of Formula One. Uh, like, we're... Yeah. And it, it's interwoven with that, but it's really about the people. Um, and yeah. so that's kind of the, the image I have of this, but, like... I don't even know if it'll ever see the light of day, right? Especially mm, with the rider right. strike. So, um, interesting that Formula One is, you know, putting money into stuff like this, though. Like they, they are trying a lot of new things. There, there, yeah. There is a, there, there's definitely a thirst to keep the momentum up on this growth. I guess. Yes. Um, it was. We were having an interesting conversation with Steve about NASCAR, actually, about the history of NASCAR. Um, over the past 20 years and he was saying that some of the f1 stuff these days remind him a bit of the sort of like peak of nascar um uh popularity maybe what was it like 16 17 years ago or something he was kind of yeah and i had they sort of like dropped the ball a bit um, they tried to ride the wave and they just drove it into the ground instead yeah um so th- there's some of that is coming I'm, I'm starting to think about that like further down past the shadow a little bit of like <laughs> Will we will we look back in a couple of years and look at some of these things that now seem you know kind of like all fun and games or even like you know the Vegas Grand Prix or anything like that and yeah. will we will we now realize like oh yeah those were all pointing in the wrong direction and we should have seen it coming like I don't know it's hard to tell I mean you never know when a wave is crested right uh, it's 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 really it's really hard to know and frequently it's easy to say. Ah, like they kind of became victims of their own success, and that's where the decline began because they were making decisions at the time of the wave was crested. But all that stuff becomes very like uh, not even twenty twenty hindsight. It just assumes that it couldn't have gone a different way, right. uh, and that those decisions, like the uh, like there was an inevitability to it, uh, or that the decisions themselves, like you know, maybe caused the decline. I think with with F one, I think the thing it has going for it to some extent is. My recollection of like the NASCAR craze of like the late '90s, early 2000s is that NASCAR gleefully embraced like the two Americas, uh, you know, approach to being a motorsport, and they picked a side, and they became identified with a like it wasn't just it wasn't just a racing series; it was now a way of life. It was a like cultural identifier. And that's cool, but NASCAR hadn't been that before. Like, as much as you can say, oh, it's always been, like, sort of the southern motorsport. Yeah, but, like, 
my family was watching NASCAR in the 80s. We got more into like indie as it went along, but like by the 2000s, there was kind of a vibe that uh, it's, it's clear who this is for. It ain't me. Right. I'm not sure Liberty could go that direction even if they wanted to because it is such a like you know determinedly European sport. Aren't they? Uh, well, are they trying to though? Like if they're trying to produce this, you know, uh, prestige television show. But it's funny, like in a way, I feel like we've talked about it before, about how like if you go back and look at F1 10 years ago, it did feel way less inclusive. Like like it felt it had a very particular tone and like vibe to it. And I think we've all talked about how the drivers are kind of responsible for shaking that up a good amount. And obviously the TV show has either echoed that or helped that as well. In In a way, I kind of feel like with the ESPN stuff and with this show and with Drive to Survive and with the F1, you can cut. There's kind of lots of ways to be an F1 fan these days. Yeah. Like my sister now can't doesn't really have time to like sit down and watch the races anymore, but she's reconnected with F1 because she gets to sit down and watch the Drive to Survive every year, and that has her kind of like tuning in a little bit to the races here and there. And like I feel like in years past, like especially when I was growing up, like you just needed to like wake up at a weird time and sit down in front of the BBC and watch the broadcast. And that's how you were an F1 And if fan. you didn't, you there was nothing else, right? No, now we have no, a YouTube channel. Now we have podcasts, multiple podcasts like from totally. Formula One, like yeah. uh, well, original that was, that was a huge new, part written of content. To say nothing of all the, you know, community-created stuff like this podcast, yeah. WTF1, whatever it is, you know? I mean, like Bernie Ecclestone's stewardship of F1 was actively hostile to new media. He was yep. one of those guys who was just deeply skeptical. And I think, you know, honestly, with good reason, I think if we look at the trajectory of a lot of media properties around the advent of the Internet, like, I'm not sure that, like, immediately going in uh, with both feet <laughs> was necessarily the play at the time in those early stages. But F1 was, like, fighting a rearguard action against, like, YouTube highlights. Oh, like, man. Way past when it made sense. Yeah, I remember G- Giant Bomb used to get cease and desist when people would post the logo right yes to the to the wiki yeah crazy incredible <laughs> but like i don't know like i think um you know it's it's one of those things where the sport was in some ways i think they would i think and i think they probably do they love the idea of saying it, this was part of a sort of master plan for all how this was going to go but i do think you know for years and years f1 had just sort of settled into a sort of complacency about like this is who our audience is. We have no penetration in the U.S., so our audience is going to be weirdos getting up at the odd hours uh, to follow the sport. And we're kind of good with that. And then things loosen up, and there were a few a few events that did uh, cause the sport to kind of catch fire and reach a new audience, uh, and they've, they've run with that. I will say uh, NASCAR tried this, I think, last year. NASCAR made a show called The Crew. Starring Kevin James. It was a sitcom what? about life inside a NASCAR. You're oh, kidding. Wow. <laughs> uh, Bruce McGill played Bobby Spencer, the owner and the old CEO of the racing team. Jillian uh, Miller was Catherine Spencer, the new CEO, the daughter of Bobby Spencer Racing. Boys, boys, uh, boys. I think we found our patron exclusive <laughs> podcast for June. <laughs> oh, my fucking God. Is it still on Netflix? <laughs> 40% of Rotten Tomatoes. Let me open Netflix and see, because who knows what's still on the calendars <laughs> anymore. Uh, but I watched an episode of it, and I found it very hard to watch that full episode. 
Uh, is it still? It's still there. Wow. It's still All there. All right, that's going in the poll then. That's good. That's fair. Democracy will. I'm watching the season one trailer, and all I can see is Kevin James drinking from the largest possible Dunkin' Donuts branded cup I have. You could possibly put on, oh, boy. on TV. So, yeah. Wow. All right. Well, hoisted by my own knowledge of <laughs> weird attempts to tie in uh, scripted television to motorsports. Uh, well, Rob, we got one more uh, here from uh, the news section. What's going on with Spa? Well, I mean, to an extent, I will admit up front, having said every year how much I love Spa and how much of a great old track it is and how like F1 would not be F1 without it, uh, I'm going to, I'll be honest here, Spa has had crap races now for like three years running. Uh, the, the This era of F1 rules does not seem to have been kind to Spa. But one of the things that we also covered was that Spa really did undertake an effort to modernize the track, both from a safety standpoint, uh, but also to improve its like literal physical accessibility to like large numbers of fans and to improve the like quality of the venue itself and the the things that there are to do uh, while you're at while you're at Spa. And this was all the sort of conform to what is Liberty Media's conception of every, every F1 race should have a huge like festival vibe. Uh, so I guess Spa has been doing one-year extensions year to year for the Grand Prix. Uh, and like last year, they signed the one-year extension the morning of the Grand Prix oh at Spa. Oh, my goodness. Wow. And so I gather they are still negotiating for one-year extensions because F1 does appear to badly want to cut races from the European calendar. Uh, they they really want to take the take the racing elsewhere, and so there was a plan. Uh, one one of the things that was you know listed as a thing that would cause Spa to go away was the South African Grand Prix at uh, Kilami, and that has I guess kind of fallen apart at least for now. Uh, so you know that that indicates that Spa maybe gets another year or two. But you're you're saying that if Formula One had made that happen in South Africa, they would say, well, we don't need Spa anymore. Is that what you're saying? Well, there was another solution they were they were kicking okay. around. Uh, according to Autosport, um, there were there were rumors that they would make oh man, this would talk about international incidents. They were going to make Belgium and uh, the Netherlands trade off. Oh wow. One year spa one year, Zandvoort. one year Zandvoort. Wow, God! Uh, you know, this was kind of the this was kind of how they split the you know split the child in Germany for a number of years, right? It was one year Nurburgring, one year Hockenheim. Uh, by the way, this is the other thing that's putting extra pressure on the European calendar. With Audi coming into the sport, they want a German Grand Prix back, right? Yeah, and so they are pushing to get uh, you know Germany back on the calendar, bring it back to Hockenheim. And at that point, you know, that's an, you know, they finally, they finally drove a stake through the heart of a European, a major European F1 race. And now Audi's back and wants it to come home. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of tension around this. I think, you know, the, the thing is Spa is one of those tracks where I think a lot of the drivers do rally around. They always, they always praise it as like one of the old classics. Uh, but it does kind of seem like long term, 
whatever the spa organizers do, whatever they do do with that facility, F1 wants to have fewer races in Europe and, uh, you know, take take it elsewhere. Uh, I would like for them to bring back Hockenheim Ring, but they should extend the drag strip onto the circuit um, just to make sure that there's as much slipping as possible as that one uh, terrific German Grand Prix. Um, it's funny you mentioned them trying to turn Spa into a festival. Um, do you remember the roller coaster they used to have there? We I feel like we talked about this a few years ago. Um, uh, it's hard to like Google any information on it, but remember that they had this like... F, this like ride you could do at Spa that would drive along it was like on the start finish straight I think it never opened or like somebody got hurt immediately so they closed it down and it basically just like went like really fast in a straight line like right at the like like a human squirrel cam is that what I, I I'm unfamiliar with that but I, like it just the squirrel cam is the one they have over the pit lane where it just zips along like spider cam right. is the one that can move laterally and forward squirrel cam can just move uh, like linearly okay yeah so like that um, it would just go but you'd be facing forward but it would just go pew just to show, give you g-forces or whatever like a rocket sled yeah like a rocket sled, yeah that kind of thing yeah so they had something like that oh, but yeah. I think someone got hurt immediately and they shut it down or so it was like back in like the I feel it was like 97 or something like that. I do have a vague yeah. recollection of like the first season of our podcast. Are you telling me about that? Yeah. I and also the Ferrari world one next to yes, where, uh, Abu Dhabi. I think, yes, that's still there. And there's a great video of, I believe it is, it's Alonso and Massa. I forget which one, but I think it might be Alonso's wallet flies out of his pocket. You can you could watch the video of it. Uh, it's the two of them on the Ferrari world roller coaster, which is right beside Jasperina. Um, and if you watch Alonzo's pocket as they jet off on the roller coaster, you can see his wallet slowly like get pulled out, pulled out, and then just explode, <laughs> like 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 awesome. that like that bird that hit Fabio in the face. This was oh, like wow. this. It was like the it just and he didn't even notice. So he, like he didn't and he came off the ride with shaking hands. So presumably later in the day he noticed it, but it's. It's on YouTube forever. Someone's running up charges on what was left of his credit card. <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs> uh, so, well, no, no way anything like that could happen at Spa right now uh, because the only tickets left, they're completely sold out except for the Experience in the Sky lunch served atop a 150-foot crane as That's guests right. enjoy unparalleled views of the Ardan circuit. That's right. They've That's shown the one where they got like kind camera. of a hibachi restaurant that goes up in the sky, like with a crane. Yeah, that sounds awful. Yeah. <laughs> it does. It does. Like I can't imagine like your your food going instantaneously cold in the stiff breezes up there. Can I get but a Danny? Refill? What if you paid a thousand dollars for it? Oh well, then did they <laughs> sweeten the deal? How do they refill my champagne? Oh, they bring it all up there with you, just in one drone. Just they also drone. buckle you in. <laughs> yeah. You can't. You I can't be. I think. I think you're having dinner in like gamer chairs. Did they give you a bucket to pee in or something? Or like, <laughs> just pee off the edge. Yes. Yeah, just go, man. Yeah. It's big forests, yeah. I guess. Nature pee. Uh, well, that's a weird segue. So <laughs> I'm not going to even try. Um, Danny, we went to NASCAR. Is this where we want to talk about it? Because I would love to talk about it because it was awesome. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, it was. It was funny. This year. This. This is the time of year where there's. A big video game conference on every year and this year i forgot it because there was a possibility of nascar happening um and i'm glad i did it was 
a bunch of fun. I live I live so close to the circuit. It's it's ridiculous. Like afterwards, I met my wife and kid at at our like pool place we go to, which was like a fifteen minute drive away from from Sonoma Raceway. It was like surprisingly <laughs> easy traffic getting in and everything. I I was kind of surprised that the crowds weren't bigger. Like it we did go and leave early. We did. That's true. That's true. We turned up early and we left early. Um, but yeah, uh, it was not packed. Uh, the stands, although we are, you know, in, in Northern California, far away from, I guess, the heartland of NASCAR. Um, but yeah, people, you know, it's like when we went to Austin, Danny, like, it's just kind of, I don't know, there's just a, there's just a feeling that you get when you're there. Everyone is just excited to be yeah. there and uh, to support their, their weird sport um, that like only they are the ones uh, it felt very much like we were we were among friends. Like, yeah, um, it, it maybe you know different flavors, but we're all just kind of the same kind of nerd. It was. It, I was surprised. Um, there was definitely like much more than F one. The access you got to draw, and I mean we had VIP stuff, so like we got a little bit further. Yes, but thanks even, to Steve. Yeah, thanks again, man. Um, but even you know, aside from that, like when we turned up, just in the general food area, immediately I turned and I was like, "That's Bubba Wallace," and he like got up and did an interview in front of everyone um the cup was right there they were bringing out um drivers all the time to do these like fan interviews um they were just kind of wandering around obviously we got to go into the behind the pit lane and and see them working on the cars and um see uh what was whose f1 team was it again mr worldwide who was Oh, Pitbull. His Pitbull yeah. had his own. His, his, we saw Richard Petty's team, and did. he was there with his hat. We saw Richard Petty hat. with his amazing hat. I, we were five feet from Richard Petty. Um, uh, who else was One there? One of the only NASCAR people that I could name. Uh, right, yes. So <laughs> that was exciting. There was a surprising amount of people wearing Bucky's merchandise, the, uh, the gas station in, is it only in Texas? I don't know. I've only ever been to the one in Texas. Um yeah it was but I, I just thought yeah it was like the access was amazing like you really feel like you were in it um and then yeah i guess for people in northern california in particular i was like it, there was no line for food the bathrooms were clean and not crazy um i never felt it was never like that crazy crazy busy that i was expecting because even because in austin i mean like it was impossible you were like queuing up forever to get anything um yeah and the seats of course much more reasonably priced than Formula One. And we had and also just a slab on a piece of concrete. Well, that is true. <laughs> yes. They were very much, uh, you know, sort of like a, a Greek amphitheater. Yes. Um, but we sat at we sat at turn two. Oh, what a um, spot. Had great seats. We saw the pass for the lead. We did. Uh, right in front of us. And we paid $67 a piece. It's crazy. It was So turn two is right at the top of the hill. So as they're... Yeah. So basically, the overtake kind of starts at the top of the hill, and we could see all the way down to, I don't know, was that turn four or five? But like, you could basically see where if they were going to overtake, they would do it by then. So it was a great little story. Our little bit was a great little story. And I will also say, I don't, I never got this at F1. I never, maybe because the cars are louder in F1 or something, but they had a big screen directly across the track. And mm-hmm. the speakers piped straight to us, and it was like you were watching television. So you had, I had full knowledge of what was going on in the rest of the circuit while we were watching, and then the cars would come up. And I never felt yeah. that at, at, in at least in Austin, 
I re- I always felt afterwards I had to rewatch the race to figure out what was going on. Yeah, I, I feel like we we did have a screen and they were blasting some audio at us, but it was it was tougher to follow. Uh, it's probably like you know uh, depending on where you're, you're sitting, but right. I'll tell you like we um, you know because we had those VIP passes, which I think you can you can upgrade your ticket to to get access to. We were you know you know um, uh, there were there were a lot of other people there with with those passes. Mm. Um, we were in the pit lane, basically in a in a blank pit box, uh, for the start of the race. So cool! Uh, and to f- hear and feel mostly, thirty six cars do a rolling start right in front of you <laughs> is one of the most exhilarating feelings I have ever experienced. It was so cool. They were so they were on the other. We were on the in the pit lane. So there was maybe like what thirty feet of tarmac, which was the pit lane, and right. until you got to. And, and then, then just, a concrete wall and then yeah and then them and then just also like we were surrounded like we were literally parallel with all of these pit crews who were like the guy with the leaf blower was the funniest thing i've ever seen he was a guy whose job was <laughs> to like basically get debris and dirt presumably out of the pit box uh-huh. and it was just this one leaf and it would blow everyone some would blow over and he'd, he'd like spend 20 seconds blowing it away again <laughs> and then there was someone else spraying something which had an incredible smell to it. And you said you wondered if it was some type of... Um, like spray adhesive? Yeah, spray adhesive. And it did have a glue-like, yeah. varnish-like sort of smell to it. Um, but he kept spraying it directly, like kind of where you'd imagine the tires would go. So I'm guessing, yeah, something so like that. There we also, um, uh, I guess this is just a lot of minutiae about the Sonoma Speedway, but, uh, you know, if you're, if you're in the area... Um, there's a cool part where we were walking up to turn two to get to our seats, and there's a uh, an overpass, like a walkway over the track, and there are two points where you can look through the chain link gap and almost be over the track and watch the cars like doing a turn right underneath you, uh, and that's super cool too. It's a great spot, and just as well, if you've ever like seen Sonoma in a video game or anything the height of that like corkscrew like up the hill is the 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 like topographical change there is like so dramatic in real it life is a hike yeah yeah we had to walk <laughs> up yeah to get to turn two yeah everyone was super cool i was like there was a crowd in front of us who were kind of like standing watching and then noticed i was there and like asked if it was okay and then sat down and like people were just like enjoying it there was a lot of um uh, fans for certain drivers and stuff like that um uh a lot of like uh i don't know i felt like it was a good mix of people too like there was definitely diehards definitely out of towners as well some people were like representing their states uh or, or local races on their shirts and stuff um uh but yeah it was uh it was good fun speaking of shirts i uh i wanted to get the <laughs> gaudiest <laughs> NASCAR shirt I could find Achieved. and I found one uh yeah uh you know team and driver agnostic it's just the Sonoma Speedway uh and some some stock cars on it with the date uh but it is it is just full on front and back a graphic uh, tee like like the stock graphic, cars are yes. are drawn or or at least yeah 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 looks, airbrush probably looks terrific yeah yeah good time yeah great great lots of fun you know and after talking to Steve uh I have you know I know more about NASCAR now. Mm. I feel like I have a better appreciation for it. You know, if I, if I watched a race, I feel like I could, um, you know, get into it a little more. So I don't know if if it was on. You know, maybe maybe I would watch a few races here. 
Yeah, totally. It's actually made me like think about because I I was I was the only reason I left I left uh, uh, just before the end, and the only reason I did is I was like super anxious that I was going to get stuck in traffic, and I had to like go home to help my wife with my kid with a thing we had on. So I was a bit anxious about that. Um, but it made me really feel like okay, next time I do this, I'd like I'd, I I want to camp. Like I want to do the whole thing. I want to like oh, yeah. have some beers and camp it out and. I was looking at like you know Talladega's on in October. I was like, could I just like, <laughs> oh yeah, just even on my own, just like go, you know, f- go, ha- get a ticket, go camp out. Like, what would that be like, you know? So I'm kind of playing with the idea. Maybe we'll see. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, and take your kid. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. what a great thing for a kid. <laughs> there I'll was, bet there was one kid who was it. beside us in the uh, in the pit lane, and the minute one of the cars started up. He just started crying. I felt so bad. <laughs> we all had earplugs in, but like even you can feel it in your chest. It's just like yeah, yeah. It's yeah. It's it's intimidating. It's wild. Cool. Well, um, thanks again, Steve. Uh, great to meet you. Thanks for the hookup. Um, and uh, let's now turn our attention from uh, California to Canada. Canada. Yes, we're back at Circuit uh, Gilles Villeneuve. Um, this is a kind of a favorite top to bottom. I feel like the drivers really like this, and this uh, race, this circuit, has given us great races uh, over its sort of various eras of F1. It's kind of an, an, an old hat as well. Um, so the, I guess, original, you know, reason why this track exists is they built built this fake island. Um, called uh, Notre Dame Island on the St. Lawrence River, originally for the 1967 World's Fair. Um, they ended up using it in the 1966 uh, Olympics as well in Montreal, and then they were trying to figure out what to do with it. And uh, there was a couple of Canadian drivers in F1. There was a Canadian uh, F1 before this, but it sort of bounced around a lot, other Canadian cities. Um, and they basically came up with the idea, kind of like albert park in uh, australia although i believe that was later uh, to convert some of the roads that were on this um into a uh, temporary racetrack which can be opened during race weekend and then shut down and it'll still be a nice park for everyone else the rest of the year and so they did that pretty quickly after the olympics in 1978 uh, the first race was won by gilles villeneuve so perhaps appropriate that the track uh, was subsequently named after him. Um, it's a 70 lap race, 4.36 kilometers. That's 2.7 miles. Uh, interesting sort of, tra- a bit different to some of the tracks we've had recently, especially Barcelona. This is way more stop starty. It's got heavy brake zones, low downforce, not much in terms of like hills. It's basically flat as a pancake. This is a man-made island after all. <laughs> um uh, and uh, I guess in terms of areas that are worth checking out, uh, this one is various DRS straights. It has three of them. Um, all three of them provide some aspect of uh, overtaking. There is uh, one on the start-finish straight right at the start. There is one on a back straight, one of two back straights at the end of sector two, which is not super long. Um, it'll be interesting to see if that is a place where like only Red Bull are able to get the DRS overtake to work and no one else is, um, we'll have to see. And then uh, on the back straight at the end of sector three is a incredibly long um, uh, DRS zone, which in years past has been uh, 
pretty much a done deal overtaking spot or maybe that's maybe that's overdoing it it's not like china but it's 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 definitely one of the longer straights uh and uh they've moved the drs line here a couple of times in years past that we have had a little bit of a back and forth because that then goes on to the um start finish straight you have these two straights that are separated by a chicane and on the outside of a chicane is a wall that wall is called the wall of champions because many F1 champions over the years, along with people who were not F1 champions, have uh, uh, busted up their wheels, uh, just cooking it a little bit too hot from one straight into the other, uh, taking a little bit of curb, or maybe just running a little bit too wide of the apex of the exit of that chicane, and uh, brushing up against that wall, sometimes hitting it pretty hard. Um, but like I said, because there is the other straight, start-finish straight is right there, in years past, at least, we have had interesting battles where drivers have overtaken on the first one, fought back on the second one. Also, lots of times where people have skipped that chicane, which has led to some interesting moments. Um, and it's just one of these tracks where I feel like every turn has something on it, you know? I remember... I think this is this circuit has generated... I think, you know, the difference between this and, like, say, China mm. or Spain is that those straights, those passing opportunities kind of resolve themselves in like you either did it or you didn't uh, turns basically. And those turns kind of set those corners tend to also basically cut off the duel from there. Right. Like in, uh, in Spain, you've got a high speed, you got like a right left uh, and then a long high speed right hander where just the construction of the modern cars, like, the aerodynamic interference, like the like the, the racing, is not going to continue <laughs> yeah. through that stage. Uh, China, it's been a while since we've seen it. We yeah. don't know what it would be like in this current era. But that was again like just ridiculous speeds coming up to a pretty straightforward hairpin. I feel like in Canada, we see a lot of action persist into sector one. Doesn't necessarily mean it's really that feasible to get stuff done in sector one. But you do see people trying it a lot. And if you can at least keep it close through sector one, you know, you have opportunities later in the lap to to again strike again. So I think, you know, I think it's one of those things where it's not it wasn't designed to do this because it, it fits such different it was such a different era when this was designed to fit it, you know, different constraints. But just the way it has shaken out in the DRS era and with these types of cars like Canada feels like it has maintained a fair maintained a fair bit of good racing uh you know in ways that even similarly constructed circuits have struggled yeah i agree i think one of the things that maybe allows for this is that um there are two parts on this track that have um some corners in the middle but separated by straights that have a risk reward element to them. Yep. Um, the final two turns on the track was what I was referring to, which was kind of like the big long DRS straight and then the star finish straight. If you're leading, you mightn't want to go too hard into that. But if you're trying to overtake, you can be risky there. And that's why the wall of champions is called the wall of champions. You can try and make up a second and then get them on turn one. And then similarly on the other side, uh, in the first DRS straight, I guess you'd call it, um, that has a sort of a left-right-hander that, again, we see a lot of people overshoot it because they're tr trying to cook it hard because they're trying to catch up with somebody so they can outbreak them into turn 10. So turn 1 and turn 10 are sort of, the, they're kind of mirrored that way where there's an opportunity for someone to be a little bit more risky, right? 
Well, it helps that 10 has a tremendous amount of runoff. Yeah. And so even though it is a very tight, like in terms of like the uh, radius of the turn, the correct line is, is, is fairly tight. You can attack it a few different ways. You can basically try to get it done going into 10 and then hope you can get away. Or you can do the thing where you can compromise your entry into 10, but be on it super fast yes. and going hard down down the straight. So, yeah, it's just it's it's a track that uh, has you know has has set up a lot of set up a lot of good duels. Hopefully, we get another one here. Though I, I, I will say I have never heard so much lowering of expectations from the teams heading into a race. Oh really? <laughs> oh my god! Everybody. So everyone's like either has rolled out or is rolling out upgrades, and pretty much all of them are saying up front. It probably isn't going to do a lot for us in Canada. I wonder- Canada's probably not going to be very good for us. Uh, I think Mercedes are probably the prime offenders here because they're down on straight line speed, and so their position is this does not have the high-speed corners that they need exactly. to really get back yeah. into contention, and that Red Bull is just such a rocket ship that you know we've, we've seen the way that thing can gallop. But it also does feel in some ways like there is a – battle between Mercedes and Ferrari to sort of poor me uh, <laughs> you know, through the season so that if they have a good one, uh, it's like, damn, it's an underdog triumph. And then outside <laughs> of that, uh, you know, again, downplaying. I think Total Wolf, they were asking about the, the good performance coming out of Spain and what his hopes were for, for this. And he's like, I'm never an optimist. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's a new one. Uh, we, I, I think, I think there's nothing more optimistic than, I think we fixed the car, guys, at the end of last year into this one. But now he is fully in, like I'm just a flinty-eyed realist about this car. <laughs> so I, I, there, there is an awful lot of teams coming into this, uh, you know, like setting lower expectations mm-hmm. about what they can get done here. Part of it is that it is true, like Canada is is built for speed. And, you know, you either have a car that can haul ass or you don't. And pretty much everyone knows, like, what the score is there. But there is a lot of, I think, tactical positioning of, of setting expectations. Uh, I guess the only thing I would, I'd call out here specifically is Nico Hulkenberg appears to be losing his mind at the, like, qualifying pace being up here and then race pace being in the gutter. Right. He was like, we, we got to do something about it. We can't. We have to fix this. Uh, but yeah, there's like the teams are unhappy heading into this race. Uh, if you are unhappy at watching this race afterwards, or you're looking to familiarize yourself with Canada, um, we have many times and will again in the future recommend watching the 2011 race. If you go on F1 TV, do not Google it, do not look anything about it, um, do not balk at the length of the race. There are some red flags. You can skip those parts. It is an absolute classic. I remember watching it live and losing my mind. Um, I may watch it before the race this Sunday again. It's been a few years. I might do it. That's tw- yeah. 2011. A great, great race. I saw an article calling that one of the most overrated races for so and so. Okay. And I almost wrote a letter to a letter to the editor, being like, "I did not expect clickbaity articles like this within the hallowed halls of autosport." Uh. Uh, well, let's just say rain is a factor uh, in that race, yes. as it might be this weekend. Ooh. Looking toward the forecast, we're looking at fifty-eight percent chance of precip on qualifying day with temperatures uh high of 70 
uh, or 21 huh. Celsius. Okay. Um, uh, light wind on qualifying and race day. Uh, slightly higher, 22 Celsius, 71 uh, at race time uh, on race day. And precipitation looking to be about uh, 25% at race okay. time. So, Hey, if it maybe, rains for 25% of the race, I'll be happy. I'll, yeah. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> Uh, and as we head into the Canadian Grand Prix, the driver standings look like this. Max Verstappen on top with 170 points. His teammate Sergio Perez in second with 117. Fernando Alonso is in third with 99 points. Lewis Hamilton in fourth with 87. Uh, his teammate George Russell in fifth with 65 points. And then uh, the first Ferrari of Carlos Sainz in sixth with 58 points. Charles Leclerc, his teammate, with 42. Lance Stroll, the other Aston Martin, down in 8th place with 35 points. Esteban Ocon of the Alpines has 25. Pierre Gasly, his teammate, in 10th with 15. And we've got Lando Norris with 12. Nico Hulkenberg with 6. Uh, Oscar Piastri with 5. Botas and Joe both with 4 points. Uh, in 16th place, Yuki Tsunoda tied with Magnussen at two points. Alex Albon has one, and then Nick DeVries and Logan Sargent have zero. In the constructor standings, Red Bull Racing is on top with 287 points. Mercedes has 152, and Aston Martin in third with 134. Ferrari in fourth place has four, then Alpine in fifth with 40. Uh, I'm sorry, Ferrari's in fourth with 100 points, right. uh, and Alpine's in fifth with 40. Uh, McLaren's in sixth with 17. Gene Haas and team tied with Alfa Romeo in seventh place with eight points. Then we've got Alfa Tauri with two and Williams with one. Uh, if you'd like to join the fan or the standings yourself, you can join our fantasy league using the link in the show notes. And you can also send us an email at shift shift F1 podcast at gmail.com or f1.cool slash emails. Rob, what do we have this week email wise? Uh, Joe from PA wrote in, uh, hey, Drew, Danny, and Rob, big fan of the podcast. I just wanted to tell you about a museum that I visited a couple of weeks ago that I believe you guys might be interested in visiting. Uh, the Simeon Foundation, or Simeon Foundation, automotive museum in Philadelphia, PA, which has over 70 historically significant cars throughout the history of racing on display. These cars aren't just for show, as the museum runs Demo Day on select Saturdays throughout the year, in which vehicles from their collection are run around the three-acre back lot behind the museum building, such wow. as the 24, 24 Ur, uh, Ur de Simeon, uh, which will run on the weekend of June 10th and 11th and will feature 24-plus uh, hours of demonstrations of cars from their collection, including many cars from the collection that raced and won at Le Mans throughout history, among other things. Thanks, Joe from PA. Uh, that does wow. sound like a cool museum. There's... Um, there's a lot of great automobiles. Like, growing up in Indiana, the Auburn Corps Duesenberg Museum was one that I was very fond of. Uh, that is named for three defunct auto manufacturers that were <laughs> based in Indiana. Wow. Uh, and, like, I want to say Cord had, like, really awesome, like, forward-looking, streamlined design-type cars. And then Duesenberg was, like, the... Rolls Royce of the Midwest, and <laughs> like she's a doozy. Dude. Comes from that. Oh wow! Uh, oh, I didn't know yeah. that. That's cool. Yeah, That's like cool. that. It, it was such a like iconic uh, luxury car that it, that it sort of uh, coined a piece of English idiom. Duesenberg. Uh, the there, I think there's a major car museum in Atlanta. I've always wanted to check out, 
and uh, you know that's that's sort of up there. And then pretty much every manu- manufacturer has their like you know corporate museum of great cars, mm-hmm. uh, and th- those always seem like a an absolute candy shop if you if you can go. Have you ever? I, I would be surprised if most major metropolitan areas did not have an auto museum of some kind, right? Like there's just so many cars. Uh, you know, there are there are tons of airplane museums, and those are even, you know, uh, more expensive and weirder to store and and display. So cars, I imagine, are are more ubiquitous. So I yeah. guess I would say, do some do some internet searching, find an auto museum near you. Yeah, I just did, and I was like, I didn't know that the California Automobile Automobile Museum is in Sacramento. There is apparently an Academy of Art University Automobile Museum that I did not know about either, which is in San Francisco. Huh. I'm guessing there's loads in L.A. as well. Um, oh, I'm sure. Some, Jail in his garage. Sometimes, yeah, exactly. Sometimes I feel like I live in a, um automobile museum now because Petaluma, you know, oh, is, sure. is such a... I had no idea just about the car culture. I'd watched American Graffiti, which was obviously filmed up here, but like... Go listen to our podcast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, but like dri- driving around here, just some of the car, just like what's like daily drivers that are just like absolutely yeah. insane. Those like big like truck looking um, two seaters and stuff. Uh, there, it's it's a lot of fun. A lot of stuff that like I have no context for because none of these cars were ever sold outside of America, right? Um, when when we had Ladas in Ireland, you know. Uh, so it's it's cool. It's um. Did you really? Yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah. We, there was plenty, wow. there was loads of ladders in Ireland. Yeah, I don't know why, because because they were cheap, probably. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. I I hadn't seen one in years because they brought in a national car test that was required for every car, um, for various different things. It was part of when we joined the European Union, um, and so basically a lot of old cars became unroadworthy overnight, almost. So typical of the tyranny of Brussels. I know. Yeah. How how, God forbid. Our poor, our, our our good lungs, <laughs> as a result, probably. But like, I remember my mom's car was, um, she didn't have a lot of. What did she have? She had like a really old Peugeot, but it was just like a rust bucket. Just like the whole thing was falling apart. But I I remember seeing ladders all the time. And then I went to Moscow in two thousand and maybe eleven or twelve, and it was like I was like it was like traveling back in time. I was like, oh my god, it was like ladders everywhere. I was like, how are they still yeah. running? Like I hadn't seen one in. You know, thirteen years maybe. It was so strange. It is funny a how lot of spare parts. Yeah, I bet, yeah, yeah. It's funny how like that is such a signifier of what country you're in, is the types of cars. Even in Europe, like you go to Italy or France and just see lots yeah. of tiny little Cuba Peugeots and stuff. Cuba, yeah, totally, yeah. 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 Uh should I take this next one? Absolutely. Uh, Flint from Massachusetts says, Hi, crew. I just got into F1 in the 2023 season. Your preseason primer was indispensable. Thank you very much, Flint. Uh, a couple of questions, one technical and one relational. First, what's with the sparks? I was slightly <laughs> terrified to see the occasional burst of sparks just kind of out of nowhere with nothing visibly causing them. Uh, the commentators didn't seem worried, but if I was driving and saw sparks, I would stop driving immediately. Uh, second, is there animosity between drivers and their own pit crews? Having heard you all talk about Ocon's disastrous uh, run of penalties in Bahrain, I'm curious to know whether something like a mechanic touching the car too early gets snarky comments from the driver or some such. I imagine there are more driver errors generally, but I also can't imagine being in such an exclusive club as F1 drivers and not having an ego of some kind. Thanks for your fun and wonderfully informative pod, Flint from Massachusetts. 
Uh, yeah, I'll take the first one um, <laughs> first. Sparks. So there is um, there's a skid plate on the bottom of F1 cars. It's made out of is it magnesium? It's something uh, that actually does spark. And they <laughs> so they. Uh, I think they mandate what it must be made out of so that it does spark. Yes. Because they, I think, made it out of something inert, like aluminum or something, for a year, and then everyone complained. Like, we want to see the car spark. Um, so that's why the sparks happen when the cars bottom out. But why the cars bottom out, I don't hear talked about um, uh, uh, nearly as frequently. And because I, I, like you, wondered for a while, like, well, isn't, doesn't that slow them down? Like they're they're drag they're like by virtue of there being sparks, they are dragging along the ground. That's got to you know uh, result in something. But the answer that I've been able to deduce is that um, they bottom out on the ground because they're running so close to the ground, um, and the advantage that they get from running so close to the ground outweighs any drag that they incur uh, by momentary bottoming up. Right. I've always, yeah, I've always, sorry, go on, Rob. So I had always thought it was a metal skid plate. And then the other week I saw something referred to it as like, it's crazy that these things just drive on what amounts to a block of wood. And I was like, that doesn't seem right. But per Wikipedia, the block is usually made of a material called jab rock. Jab rock is made of beech wood. And built in a composite press process. Veneers are layered and a high strength uh, resin is used in each layer. So as my grand designs friends are very familiar with, <laughs> glue lamb has become like the material of the, the present and the future uh, in a lot of like high strength like uh, situations. And there's a lot of things that are like technically wood derived. But if you do pressurize them and then like treat them with enough resins. You're kind of stretching the definition of wood, right? But that is what that plank is made out of. That's crazy. Uh, is this like treated? Well, wood but the wooden resin wouldn't spark. It must have a veneer of some type of like magnesium or something over it, right? Like on, I, there on the is a there edge. there is a skid block, and the, I remember there, like last year we talked about this because it couldn't have worn down. Right, because that's how they make sure you're in conformity. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I guess I guess we need more confirmation on this. Uh, by the way, Rob, how's your uh, how's your glazing coming? Are you uh, acting as your own uh, project manager on your your home build? You'll oh, you'll God. be in by you'll be in by Christmas. I'll be in by Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> uh, second uh, question here: If drivers uh, get snippy at their pit crews, they certainly do over the radio, uh, which I always chalk up to adrenaline and like. Uh, you know they're they're juggling a lot of things, and so the the fastest way to say something is not usually the nicest. Um, but you know, I I also at least you hear outwardly um, that like you know we win and lose as a team, and sometimes it's the driver that messes up, sometimes it's someone on the pit crew, sometimes it's a strategy call, and like that's just racing, right? And I think these guys have been around racing long enough to know that like stuff like that just happens. It, it's frustrating, but like. It is a team sport. Yeah, I wonder if they, I wonder if like, because they talk to their engineers, right? And they talk to the the heads, like the, the, the individual folks who are working on the guns or whatever part of the car or, or just like working on the car when they're trying to fix up the car after it's gotten damaged or something. I bet that they're not like, 
I bet some of the drivers interact with those folks more than others. You know what I mean? Like I bet, I bet probably Max maybe does a bit, or Vettel probably did. I doubt Alonso does much. You know what I mean? Um, but and I I imagine there's an element of like you don't you want them to be on your side. Like you don't want to, to have a strenuous relationship there. So I'd say it's like any work relationship. I bet there's like people that they trust a little bit less, and maybe they talk to their superiors about it, but they. You know, and then they generally try and keep everyone happy. But, like, you got to be pissed about the dude who touched the car. Like, yeah, I'm sure they spoke. Was it Ocon? I forget who it was. Um, yeah. Um, I'm sure something was said, if it even needed to have been said. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, should I take this next one from Nick? Just to close the loop. Oh, sorry. I guess they put titanium strips in the Jabron In us. Oh, my God. Wood evolved. Love jab rock. Jab rock. Great genre of music. Um, hi, guys. Writing to you from North Carolina. Enjoy the podcast a ton and look forward to listening every week after a race to catch up on what I might have missed over the race weekend. Well, I hope you enjoy this one too, Nick. It's not after a race. It's before a race, but hopefully it's also fun. Uh, Nick continues. I wanted to hear y'all's opinion of F1 getting rid of tire blankets in 2024. I think it'd be dangerous for these cars to not have preheated tires, especially since uh, there always seem to be a team struggling to get their tires up to temperature, even with using the tire blankets. Also looking forward... Uh, sorry, looking at the several large crashes at the six hours of spa in WAC... Uh, which has already got rid of tire blankets. It seems to me that it's a way to add some artificial difficulty, but also adding uh, unneeded danger to the sport. I'd love to understand more of the motives behind why they are being banned and if F1 will actually get rid of them next year. Again, love the podcast and enjoy listening every week. Keep up the awesome work. Thanks, Nick. Um, uh, I'll, I'll open the floor in a second to you, Rob, because I know you watched them on. I didn't, and I know that there were some environmental factors as to why there was hardly any racing in the first couple of hours of uh, the 24 hours of Le Mans. Um, I would posit that the one thing F1 is most sensitive to when it comes to changing things with regard the race is safety. I think it's the stuff that they're less in likely to mess with stuff if they... Uh, based on getting feedback from both the Drivers Association and just it's the thing that lights up like viewers and listeners um, uh, sort of the red flags go up and we are still not that far removed from the death of Jules Bianchi and other drivers in in, uh, in motorsport as well. I, I think if they were sending cars out, if they thought that they were going to send cars out and they would be dangerous to drive, I don't think that would necessarily be something they want to do. I do, my assumption, and this is based on just being a viewer, is that similar to how the cars are behaving at the moment when they go out and that they are struggling for a lap to get up to temperature and it's creating, or at least hopefully they were hoping that it might create a bit more undercut, overcut drama. And it's kind of not really, um, just with the races we've had and how dominant Red Bull is as well. I'm wondering if that's what they're doing, is that they're hoping that by limiting the amount of uh, uh, the ability of the tires to get grippy as quickly as possible leaving the pits, that they're hoping that they're going to create more of a risk-reward curve 
with regard to pit lanes that it's not just about getting in and then having uh, a spot that's got no traffic or that you can cover somebody off but that there's going to be this element of the car is going to be a, a bit harder to uh to control and that you're going to have to work to get the tires up to temperature in that outlap as well that's my assumption um but also as we've seen before a lot of the times they don't really know until you do it and there's a lot of stuff that's going to change between this year and next year as well that might have an impact on it on that too um what do you guys think am i giving them too much credit for it or do you do you think similarly uh, well, my understanding is that they are, um, Pirelli is using different tires uh, for this. And so they've, they've done some testing um, to make sure that their new tire formula can, um, you know, withstand not having tire blankets. Uh, and I think the call has yet to be made on whether they are going through with this 2024 ban. There's a vote on it later this year after okay. uh, the British GP, I gather. Because drivers have raised the concern where, like, it's not going to do anything to improve the show, and we're already struggling for grip. Mm. Making it worse is going to make it more dangerous. I don't know. I'm. I think it's ostensibly, though, for ecological reasons, that they are spending a lot of energy, um, like electricity, heating these things it's, to yes. uh, 100 degrees Celsius. Uh, although they have been tapering that off, I think. Um, Considering the amount of energy that goes into making one of these tires, that that is very funny. <laughs> that they're worried, especially given what they do to the tires after a yes, race after after three laps. <laughs> yep, uh, just crunch the extra unused ones, and uh, they're junk now. Yeah, I, I I do. That is one of the that is one of the justifications for it. Uh, uh, certainly. Um, Gotta gotta get to net zero somehow. Everyone has to <laughs> everyone has to do their part. But you know, I but I am of two minds about this. Like one, I think there's a little bit of is it necessarily that dangerous or is it the drivers aren't used to driving car like every driver pre like nineteen eighty <laughs> whatever had to like learn to bring tires up to temperature and like handle the entire life cycle of the tire with this. And so it's, it may be a bit of a lost art, but there was a time when drivers managed to do this. Now, you could say the, like, it, the cars also could tolerate much broader performance band uh, and, and, and work within that than today's cars. But I, I do feel like part of it is just you have a lot of drivers who've never hit the track with anything but tires that were pretty much ready to rock. And they struggle mightily to adapt to what happens when a tire is just uh, at room temp, as it were. I I will say, like having seen it, having seen it play out in endurance racing, it does kind of seem like if it's not gener- generating crashes, it's generating a lot of guys tiptoeing around the course in ways that is also not terribly exciting to mm, watch. Right. Uh, it's a lot of people mostly driving very defensively, trying to get the car to a place where they can begin pushing, but it takes a, takes a long time to, to do it. So I don't know. I'm, I'm, a, I'm of two minds. I, I think, uh, you know, the drivers are definitely like, you know, calling it a safety issue. I think, Part of it is also, you know, they just don't have the technique uh, right now sort of in built into the muscle memory to to handle it. And so none of them want to drive under it, and they're 
they're they're sort of calling it a safety issue, but also to an extent it is a pushing comfort zones issue. Do you, do you think that had much to do with the uh, the red flags or with, at Le Mans? Was that more the weather? Well, so I think it's re- here's what here's what I think is related. Uh, like it is becoming ridiculous the amount of work that is being done uh, after incidents to before racing can resume uh, to the point where like. I swear to God, it feels like uh, Eduardo Freitas must have been out there at Le Mans, like hand built, like hand building, bar- <laughs> like barrier crash barriers right. after incidents, uh, because it was just like every time there's an incident, it was like 45 minutes to get racing resumed, and I do think there is a bit of like safety is a priority as it should be, but there are points where you're watching a race where it's like if this is what it takes to make a race safe. I'm not sure we still have a race mm. because I've been sitting here for like five, six hours and most of it has been watching cars go around in circles while people are rebuilding a barrier here, you know, rearranging tires over here and then doing like involved pass around uh, procedures. Yeah. Or you, or you need some, some solution to quickly, you know, uh, replace that stuff. Like it's, it shouldn't be a surprise that an incident happened, right? And like, oh, they hit the barrier. What Now what do we do? Like, there should be more different contingencies, faster contingencies um, to, to, you know, replace this well, kind of stuff. Eventually, if, like, if your response to everything is, we like, we have to mitigate every risk, eventually you do start pushing into risk mitigation strategies that are so, like, so involved and so, like, contrary to the intent of what you're doing there in the first place, that it begins to feel a little bit self-defeating. And I think in times, at times, it has gone that way, uh, especially given that, again, restarts are when incidents tend to happen. You know right. what I mean? It's yeah, like, yeah. thank God we got that barricade uh, fixed because then we just had another a restart, just launched four more cars into a different one. Uh, so is that is that a net safety gain? I also do feel, though, like... And I saw this, I've, you know, we talked about it in Spain... I saw it a lot at Le Mans. There's something about, like, the way tires are working right now or something about the way, like, drivers are used to running. They seem bad at mixed conditions. Like, when we're talking about tricky conditions, I'm seeing a lot of tracks that I'm like, this doesn't look that tricky. Like, that's a a mostly dry track. And it is just a, you know, it it is a uh, comedy of errors you see unfolding. And part of it is just there's either something in the way drivers are like conditioned to run in these conditions or something has shifted in the way like the cars and the tires interact with these conditions that makes it real unpredictable. But uh, I do feel like more and more I'm just seeing a lot of like, boy, why did that happen? Why can that people not drive today? Uh, Happening at various events where you shouldn't be thinking that. I was wondering that with F1 with Monaco in Spain. And I was wondering, because one of the things we've heard over the past couple of years is just how little they're able to see the track. I was wondering, yes. like, are they, can they just not see the wet spots that they could 10 years ago? You know what I mean? Eyeball it? Who knows? Because those are both tracks where there were parts of the track that were totally fine, and there were parts of the track that were wet. And presumably, the only way they could know about that was somebody in the engineering box watching television and telling them where it was wet. Uh, obviously, they could feel it, but, like, sometimes that's too late. Well, and, and I wonder if, like, cars are so heavy now does it also like eliminate some of the feel drivers have for just like the exact uh you know 
connection the car has to the road. I don't know. Yeah. But it's it's consistent. This does tie into something. Uh, someone wrote in. Stephen wrote in with a, with a great email. Stephen uh, did a analysis of red flags. Stephen writes, after the Australian GP, I was wondering whether the use of red flags in F1 has increased compared to previous years. I've been following F1 since 1988, and it definitely feels like we've seen more race-altering red flags than ever before. I've seen a lot of articles online asking the same question, all, all using the same source data, the Wikipedia list of red-flagged Formula One races, but they only seem to focus on numbers and not causes. I did some analysis and found the results surprising. Summary. I, I'm getting the sense we have a, a man of science here. Summary. <laughs> There is no overall trend in the number of red flags since their introduction in 1971. Current rate is comparable to seasons in the mid-80s. However, there has been a considerable recent increase in red flags since a record low in the early 2000s. That makes sense to me, because to me it feels like this is unprecedented. But early 2000s is when this like really started to get baked in to, to my expectation of F1. Until 2010, the vast majority of red flags were triggered by first or second lap incidents and resulted in a full race restart. Late race red flags were rare and predominantly caused by bad weather affecting racing for the whole field. In the last decade, red flags have been spread across race distances with more potential for generating race-altering results. I put together some dashboards and posted some graphs on Twitter. Uh, they list their, their Twitter account. I'll link uh, it. Their, their commentary on this, I was surprised to see that the current number of red flags is actually similar to what we saw in the late 80s, even accounting for the longer race calendar, the rate of red flags, uh, number of red flags divided by the number of races in the season, shows a similar pattern. Since the first red flag in 1971, we can see two peaks, one around 1990 and another in 2021. In between, there's a period in the late 90s, early 2000s, where whole seasons passed without mm -hmm. a red flag. Whoa. There is a possible correlation here with the introduction of the safety car in 1993. This makes intuitive sense. The safety car allows even major incidents to be cleared under yellow flag conditions without suspending the race. So, if the overall rate of red flags is not increasing, what else has changed? Well, if we look at the laps on which the red flag was brought out, we see a very different picture. Up until the 2000s, the vast majority of red flags arose from first or second lap incidents that resulted in a full, in a full race restart. In the last two decades, red flags have appeared more often throughout the race distance. This definitely helps give the impression that red flags are disruptive and are affecting the race result more than before. As for the causes, before the 2000, mid-late mid, race red flags were almost always call, caused because of bad weather. Uh, and then his opinions here at the end. It's clear that red flags are being used more often to manage incidents throughout the race, most of which were probably handled previously under the safety car. Additionally, in 2018, F1 reinstated the use of standing starts following red flags. Previously, races were always resumed using rolling starts behind the safety car. These combine to give a real feeling that red flags are having a very disruptive effect on races, often offering results in the process. I believe a red flag mid-race is meant to be a pause to the racing rather than a reset. On this basis, I would not use standing starts following a red flag and revert to rolling starts to resume races safely and efficiently. Great work on the podcast. Stephen Francis. Nice email. Great, great wow. email, Stephen. Um, I'm wondering, just him talking about that, there are, there's one moment that stands out to me as a moment in which we started to see more red flags when maybe they do safety cars, and that was Jules Bianchi's crash in 2015 in Japan, which mm -hmm. was under double-waved yellow conditions, I believe, that corner was, right? Um, yeah. Because there was a machine on the track. There was that famous line from Martin Brundle years earlier, 
you know, 15 years earlier saying one of these days somebody's going to hit one of those trucks. I do wonder if that maybe could be one of the reasons. Um, he doesn't get into, you know, perhaps what was some of the reasons they happen in the modern era, but I, I, I wonder. Yeah. yeah. Like they're, they're, they're just so um, primed to throw red flags because of those sorts of reasons. But it, it is interesting, you know, he, Stephen cites the safety car coming out um, in 93 now we have the virtual safety car and yet still more red flags. Yeah, and, and when we did have the moment in uh, also Suzuka, that rain race last year, right, where the crane, there was the crash, and then were they under safety car when that crane was oh, driving down? Oh, yes. The crane was back oh to track, God. right? So yeah. I think that's another, that seemed so crazy to us. I mean, it seemed so crazy because yes. it was crazy, but also there was lots of people saying, why didn't we red flag this and why were why was the, truck on at that time so i do wonder if we're all a bit more predisposed to accepting a red flag to happen when something like that happens whenever there is anyone on the track doing anything you know what i mean i don't know but at the same time like to steven's point if we are saying well you get like there's a lot of incidents now you need to red flag the race so things can be like so the track can be made safe and fit for racing the standing start is a crash generator. And it, yeah. it doesn't even, yeah. but here's yeah. the thing, it also doesn't need to be a standing start. As we see in IndyCar all the time too, with like a rolling restart, yeah. like again, just bunching up the field yeah. causes, especially later in the race, when comparatively now, yeah. though picking up the positions is real valuable. Yeah. And so it's this weird thing of like, at, like simultaneously, the experience of watching a lot of these races is on the one hand, you're like, we are being hyper cautious in how we are deploying flags and like bring racing to a halt and then also in the process yeah. it feels like we are generating like two or three times as many accidents That's as, a really good as point. we had before yeah. Yeah. um and so those things are those things are often at odds but then and i think you brought up lamont a couple times i struggled to get through the first like i struggled to get through that race because i would say the first six eight hours it felt like they would manage to get 15 minutes of racing and then you get 45 minutes of that's wild uh yellow full course full course caution and then a really involved pass around process uh to oh, sort of, of reorder the field yeah and no, no, just, the do, just do the five cars at the front that always works don't worry about everyone else <laughs> But the two things combined to make it like every single incident, including ones that didn't seem major, it was just like, well, we're just going to watch guys now do laps around Le Mans at safety car speeds for the next 45 Endurance minutes. Endurance racing. <laughs> yeah, it, but it was like... Endurance watching. <laughs> yeah. And then, but you wouldn't get much racing because you get the restart. And then no time at all, you get drivers who are, you know, once again, jockeying for position. Mm. God knows what their tire temps are at. And also... Yeah, are they still feelings. sharp? Yeah, like are they still? Are, did they kind of check out a little bit under all the yellow flag conditions? I don't know, but it was like we are simultaneously not seeing racing, and also in the name of safety, it also feels like we are cause we are helping set up more more crashes. Ooh, quick question. Yeah, was a certain Irish German in the field? Oh, he was. He was. Oh no. Okay. Don't say anything else. Don't. I need. I don't want next season to be spoiled. Yeah, you I'm uh, you'll you'll find out. Uh okay. I I will I will just say uh Lamont like so I I kind of 
I was very confident. I had a feeling for how Lamont was going to turn out, so I just sort of blurted out some thoughts uh, during the Forza trailer at Game Fest. Right? Like, they talked about GM's history in racing, and they showed the 33 Corvette, and I was like, well, those guys got their asses kicked at Lamont. <laughs> that didn't work out well for them. And then people were like, Rob, they won. <laughs> and I was like, they were about to retire that car when I started watching the race. Uh, it was like one of those things where, you know, 12 some hours into the race, like the Corvette was nowhere. Their start, their start had been so bad. Uh, and then they came battling back. Um, likewise, uh, Cadillac sort of battled, battled back from kind of being lost in the, uh, in, in the, in the, in the hypercar class. So it was, it was an enjoyable race by the end, but my God, it was, it was, uh, Tough sledding. Hmm. Well, uh, while we're spoiling it, congratulations to uh, Formula One's own Antonio Giovinazzi and Ferrari coming back to win Le Mans after what? 60 years or something? And they dominated quality too. It was, it was a dominant display this weekend. Uh, I think one of the Ferraris had bad luck, but. Uh, the they trip. they had a really terrific weekend. They also do you, do you guys did you guys follow the saga of the Garage Fifty Six car? No, uh, only in uh, post race uh, articles. Yeah, do you want to reset what that is? So it's the new it's the new type NASCAR. Uh, it it's a it's a cool Camaro uh, at least in terms of like the skin sweet. on it. It looks like a sweet Camaro. And does, it, does it have a tape deck so you can put in your White Snake album? It looks like a modern Camaro, unfortunately. <laughs> so yeah, tape tape uh, tape deckless. But Garage Fifty Six is where uh, like the federation that runs Le Mans allows like cars that are of special interest to international motorsport. And so this new model NASCAR was sort of qualified for Le Mans under that rule. Okay, uh, where they're not in any class, but they're allowed to run there. And you know what? That's the best ambassador America's had in years. It just won the hearts and minds of all them European racing fans. Hearing these piddly little, you know, small V8 hybrids and such going around the track. V6 hybrids, twin scroll. uh, And then the Garage 56, uh, like NASCAR Camaro would just come. Like, there's tons of videos from the stands at Le Mans. Like, Here's what all the cars in the class sound like, and here comes the Garage 56 car. (laughs) And it is just like the sound of the... You know how like fighters at speed sound like they're ripping the sky open? (laughs) It's kind of that. Uh, So like people loved this car, um, even if it was not particularly competitive. Um, But it was was a cool event. Yeah. It finished, and it wasn't last. No. Um, in fact, it was it was kind of midfield, uh, and even Jensen Button was like, you know what? I'm not sure who who drove. He drove it with uh, Mike Rockefeller and Jimmy Johnson. Uh, was like, you know what? I beca- I became a believer. You know, it was it was heavy to drive at first, uh, you know, hard to wrap your mind around. Um, but uh, you know, very very fun. So That's even rad. a very British man was convinced. Uh, well, thank you all for those emails. Um, you can send them in again at shiftf1podcast at gmail.com or f1.cool slash emails. You can also hit us up on the socials, including on YouTube, using the link in the show notes. Uh, that's us around the internet. Should we take it around the world of racing? It's Andy? race around the world. Yeah. Uh, MotoGP is at the Saxon Ring Ooh. this weekend. 
We've also got supercars down at uh, the Hidden Valley Racetrack. Oh, shit. How are we supposed Just to find that? Ranch. That's I know. Oh, you went the ranch way. I went, I went mystical. Like, you have to, like, <laughs> walk backwards through a forest to find it. That's right. Um, let's see. We got IndyCar. They're at Road America for the San Sio Grand Prix at Road America. What? San, San Sio. What's San Sio? San, San Sio. They doesn't sound very American. do uh, vehicle protection. San Sio. We have a comprehensive lineup of vehicle protection plans. Okay. You need to protect your Nothing vehicle. Nothing more American uh, than protecting your property. <laughs> so, <laughs> Uh, the uh, FIA World Rally Cross Championship is in Norway for the World Rally Cross of Norway. They are, they are at Hell Motorsport. Oh my God, Lankebanen. Amazing. On the uh, uh, the address for the circuit is unnamed road, Hell Norway. <laughs> yeah. It's probably up north. Uh, That's where all the really interesting Norwegians are. Uh, Super Formula is back at Sportsland Sugo, a motorsports facility in the town of Murata. Ooh. Shibata District. Miyagi Prefecture. Miyagi, yeah. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Formula One. Maybe you've heard of it. Uh, things kick off Friday uh, at Free Practice 1 time, 1.30 p.m. on ESPN2, followed by Free Practice 2. At 5 p.m. on ESPN2. These are Eastern times, by the way. Saturday, free practice three at 12.30 p.m. Very watchable times, these, for North American audiences uh, and South American audiences. Um, Also on ESPN2, everything is on ESPN2. Uh, Qualifying, 4 p.m. on ESPN2. And the race, everyone, Sunday, 2 p.m. On ESPN2, that, by the way, is the Ricardo and Arnett stream, Okay. while the regular stream will be on ABC. That's amazing. ESPN are just going all in, the, their main broadcast. They're counter-programming themselves. Yes, see how are. it works out yeah. for them. Weird. Uh, but that's what's going on this weekend. What happened on this day, Danny? On this day in June 14th, uh, w- wonderful, actually, happenstance. The two tracks we talked about quite a lot today feature so prominently. Mm. Uh, the story of the Belgian Grand Prix at Spa on this day in 1964 is one of fuel or lack thereof. <gasps> As the race was just about to reach its climax, Dan Gurney's Brabham ran out of fuel just as he was about to pass Bruce McLaren. Graham Hill's BRM soon followed suit, leaving McLaren with a clear path to victory until his engine also cut out with just a couple of quarters to go, having run out of fuel. He coasted towards the finish line, willing his car to get there as Jim Clark arrived at full pelt. In a nail-biting finish, Clark was able to whiz across the line just before McLaren could get there. Oh, brutal ridiculous there was no there was no sample for, though presumably i i guess they didn't have that rule back then did they not have meters though back in those days like not that's wild. a lot of people running out of gas yeah all messing it up at the same moment i wonder what happened was there a bit of weather or something that threw them off uh, at the canadian grand prix today in 1982 nigel mansell could not blame fuel problems for his failure to win in a dominant williams car, uh, car he had already won five races that season, but spun early on. So, sorry, spun early on to hand victory to McLaren's Gerhard Berger. Mm, Good love stuff. Love a Gerhard Berger. I love a Gerhard Berger. Absolutely. Farm raised Gerhard. Gerhard. <laughs> Medium rare Grass Gerhard. Fed. 
Uh, all right. Well, uh, final thoughts as we go to Canada, Rob. I want someone to christen the Wall of Champions. Mm. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Who? Danny, Who? final pick thoughts. One. I want Rob to pick one. That's my... Uh, Who's a champion? Or a future champion? Hmm. A future champion? I don't, I don't know. I do feel like it would be very funny if it were Nick DeVries. Oh, yeah. That's good. I like that. Ugh. Um, My uh, final thought is that right now I have this mental image of Gerhard Berger eating grass in a field um, and I, I think that's going to stay with me for quite a while. Go watch the 2011 Canadian Grand Prix on F1 TV you will not regret it. Yes indeed. Uh, well if you would like to support the show and get access to all our bonus episodes and the official Shift F1 Discord you can do so over at patreon.com slash Shift F1. Have a good race weekend everyone. We will see you all next week. Meow.